The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Good morning. If you can hear my voice, please make your way back to your seat. And if you can't hear my voice, you know, hopefully the Lord prompts you to find your seat. If you will, open your Bible to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to be there in just a little bit, but I want you to be prepared. Matthew chapter 16. This morning we're taking a break from our study of the book of Jeremiah for the rest of the summer. Next week we'll begin our uh, study through the Old Testament again, beginning in the wisdom literature with Job working ourselves through Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and into the major prophets. We're going to do our overview series where we take one sermon to overview one book of the Bible. We began way back a couple years ago in Genesis and made our way through the Pentateuch and the historical books, and now we're at Wisdom. Uh, but I thought that it might have been a lot of Old Testament back-to-back, -back, go from Jeremiah to Job all the way to the summer and back into Jeremiah afterwards. So I'm going to preach from the New Testament this morning. So again, open your Bibles if you have them to Matthew chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, there's plenty of them around uh, the seats. Grab one, keep that. It's our gift to you. Before we begin, I'm going to pray, ask for God's help, and then pray also for those who are not with us and, and who are sick. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and the gift of your word. I'm grateful for the privilege to gather as a church to hear through song, through prayer, through the reading, and now, God, through the teaching of your word, who you are, what you've done, the beauties and the excellencies of Christ and the gospel, the meaning, God, of our gathering is so that you would be glorified in our gathering, in our lives, over all things, to be the treasure and the deepest joy of our hearts. God, we pray that this morning, by your Spirit, the text would be illuminated to us, that we would walk in faithfulness to it and obedience in light of it. We pray, God, particularly for those who are not here because they're sick. Uh, we think of the Honorios and, and for their children, Francis. God, we pray for health. We also pray for patience and grace there as they care for and tend to the needs of one another. We pray for those who are not here because they're traveling or otherwise indisposed. Would they, God, be encouraged by your spirit that though they are absent with us in body, they are present with us in spirit. And so, Father, we also pray for those who are not here because they are neglectful of their duties as a Christian to gather with the saints. We pray, God, that you would correct them gently in your grace to restore them to yourself and to the fellowship of your church. Lord, we pray for any unbeliever who may be here or listening, God, that they may be touched by the Word, moved by the Word, convicted by the Spirit, in obedience to the Word, and they would come to know you savingly. God, we pray for all this, as always, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Imagine, if you will, joining a gym, for instance, maybe Planet Fitness, if you're budget conscious, or if you'd like to spring for a little more fancy of a gym, sport and health. Or if you're serious about bodybuilding, Gold's Gym. And you go in, you drive down, you decide you want to be healthy, 
you want to lose a little weight or build a little muscle or get a better in shape, you want to improve the efficiency of your heart, whatever it may be, you hop in the car, you drive down to your gym of choice, you sit down with a sales rep, you go through the motions, you sign on the dotted line, you are now official card-carrying member of the church. You pay your dues, and now you have access to the facility. You walk in virtually anytime you'd like, you can use the equipment, and you've now effectively joined a community of other health-conscious individuals, similar goals to you, using the same equipment, occupying the same space. They even have, to some degree, the same philosophy and the same beliefs that, apparently, working out is good for you and ought to be done with some frequency. But, however, there is community, but very little, if any, accountability. Certainly no responsibility and no authority for any particular members of the gym. You're simply there, you pay, you show up, you use the space and the equipment, you may shower, hopefully, and then you go home. There's no responsibility on behalf of the members of any individual institution like the gym to direct the business, to change the way business is done, to bring on staff or fire staff. The best you may be able to do is commend or complain, but you have no responsibility to Gold's Gym, no authority within the organization of Planet Fitness, and among those with whom you are working out, there's very little accountability. Occasionally, you may call over someone to help spot you, or spar with you, or do something of the like, but most of the time, even when the community exists, there is no accountability, responsibility, or authority invested in that membership per se. Certainly none towards the institution itself. But friends, I, I trust that you're here because you have at least a notion that the church and membership at the church is not like membership at a gym or a social club or anything else that might have membership. Now we've said before that the church does not corner the market on community. You can find community in a gym, in Facebook groups, in gatherings around similar ideas and interests. Community is not unique to the church, but church community is unique among all other kinds of community. Namely, that membership at a church belonging to a particular body of believers does come with accountability. It does come with the investment of responsibility and authority. Therefore, it is unlike our typical interaction with memberships in our daily lives. The kinds of authorities and responsibility and accountability that we enter into with one another is wholly different in the church than it is almost anywhere else outside of the church. That's what I want to discuss this morning as we study our passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 16 and elsewhere. We want to talk about the office of church membership. The office of church membership. Now, I trust that those of you who are members here at Foundation have an idea of what we mean by church membership. I'll explain and define that in just a moment. But I want to first define what I mean by office. That's a word that we don't usually use very often in our common conversations and parlance, but it is one that we do use somewhat frequently as we describe particular people in positions of authority. So here's my working definition of office. An office is a designated role that carries with it responsibility and authority. That's sort of a simple, easy working definition. 
When someone occupies an office, that office is a designated role that carries with it responsibility and authority. So think, for instance, of the office of the President of the United States. This person, man or woman, enters into the office, and the office gives to it, or brings with it, carries with it, certain authority and responsibility. There's many offices within the government, not simply of the, pre of the president, but of the vice president, the offices of the congressional leadership, and so on. We can also think within the business world, what we call a CEO, or other C-suite individuals, chief executive officer. These individuals have been given the responsibility and the authority to lead and to make decisions that affect that organization or institution. Or one other example, a police officer. A police officer or a law enforcement officer are those, again, who have been given responsibility and authority to carry out the laws and enforce the laws of the land. They have very real authority and very real responsibility. Now, of course, within our government, within our organizations and businesses, and even within the law enforcement community, there are those who can abuse their responsibility and authority, or those who neglect that responsibility and authority, but by and large, these offices come with, carry with it, responsibility and authority, which is to be used by those in that position. So if you are in the office of blank, that office carries with it some degree of responsibility and authority. So that's the first thing I want you to understand. When I use the word office, I'm thinking about a particular role that carries with it authority and responsibility. Those two words we'll say over and over again this morning, responsibility and authority. Now again, I mentioned that we'll define what church membership is. On the spectrum of membership, we have on one end the invisible membership of the, local of the, of the global church. This is when anyone becomes a Christian, they become members of the church, capital C. Big, universal, invisible, Catholic church, capital C. The large church is capital C. Catholic is little c. Just underscore that. So this is the global church. This has the members of every country, every nation, every tongue, every tribe, not just living now, but who has ever lived and who will ever live. All of those who are God's elect, called by Him in His covenant, are members of capital C Church. But of course, there's no boundaries to this church. There's no walls. There's no building you can come and meet and gather with. Only that will take place in heaven. But on the other side of the spectrum is the visible side of the spectrum. Big C Church, invisible. Small C Church, the local church, visible. And it's this visible side of the spectrum that we're concerning ourselves with this morning. When you're a Christian, you become a member of the global, invisible church, universal, by virtue of your belief and inclusion in the covenant. But also you are to be called into membership of a local church. That is, you belong to an expression of that invisible church. Local churches are, at the very least, a visible public expression of the universal public church. We see. So what we do when we gather on Sundays is to give flesh and bone to what is spiritual. That which can only take place in heaven, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, when all the saints are gathered together in celebration of the work of Christ, happens in small, visible, local communities like this, all around the world, and have since the very beginning 
of Christianity. So when I say membership, I'm thinking particularly membership in one of those visible local expressions of the global church, and membership particularly being a recognized, sort of somewhat formal, so that it can be counted and affirmed, commitment that unites one person to other people. That's what I mean by membership. So at Foundation, we practice church membership in a particularly formal kind of expression, but at any church, at any time, that counts its members among themselves makes some kind of commitment that is recognized among them. So whether they have a roster or a church role or they don't, there's a commitment and a recognition of who those saints that gather are, to whom they should be accountable for and with, for the elders there, to whom they are to give an account before the Lord and who they must shepherd under God's command and charge. So those are the two sort of definitions I wanted to put before us before we continued considering this office of church membership, that office being a role or a designated role that carries with it responsibility and authority, and church membership, which is a recognized and a affirmed commitment of one person to others that unites them together. What I want to do before we go to Matthew chapter 16 and consider the text there is I want to lay out this morning the sermon in three parts. The first part will be a kind of biblical theology. I want to build a little bit, if you remember, uh, a couple months ago when Pastor Jake went through uh, Genesis and gave us a picture of what really, the, what looks like the Bible being put together as one story beginning in Genesis. Many of the themes and the ideas that are expressed in Genesis are the same themes and ideas that tie the entire Bible together. In fact, what he did in all of those sermons, though he began in Genesis, ultimately ended somewhere in Revelation, tying these themes together like river and life. So we want to recognize that biblical theology is this idea of tying the Bible together to tell the same story. So the themes and the motifs which arise in one part of the Bible are really a part of a larger story that they all fit into. So that's the first part. The first third of the sermon will be biblical theology. The second part will look more specifically at Matthew 16 and do a little bit of exposition. And then lastly, I want to turn our attention to some of the practicalities about what it means as a church member in the particular office that Christians are called to possess. So the first is this. We're going to consider biblical theology of working and watching. And we're going to begin with Adam. So Adam, of course, was the first created human being. Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 outlines how God created all things from nothing. In the beginning, there was nothing. The world was form formless and void. And the Spirit, it says, hovered above the waters. And God said, day one, let there be light. And there was light. And over six consecutive days, God creates all that is in it. First, He creates the world and forms it. And then He places that which the world was created for. Animals, birds, and on the sixth day, man. And so the world was created that man might inhabit it. But both the world and mankind was created for relationship with God. And so Adam is the first created human. Shortly after Adam comes Eve, the first man and the first woman. And this couple represents for us all of humankind. This is the very genesis, the very beginning, the start of all of humanity there in Adam. In fact, in theology we say that Adam is our federal head. He's our representative. 
He represents all of humankind. What he does affects all of humanity. His sin is our sin. His corruption becomes our corruption. Had he succeeded faithfully and obeyed, his obedience would be our own obedience. But Adam in the garden was given a particular job. He was given a charge. We could say, in other words, he was put into a particular office. And that office we can describe as a priestly, kingly kind of office. So God gives Adam a job. He says, your job is to obey. Your job is to subdue the earth and exercise dominion over it. Your job is to be fruitful and multiply. This job has been called many different things, but we can call it sort of the cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply, or we can call it the first great commission, that is to execute the charge that God has given was mostly to act like God's priest in his temple, which the garden then represented, that was God's dwelling place, and to act like a smaller king, subservient to the large king, the over king, the great king. So Adam was given a job. He was made in the image of God, and he was to fulfill that image, bearing relationship, by being a priest in the garden and a king over creation. Adam was a priest king. His job was to subdue the earth and to rule. Or we could say his job was to work and to watch over. To work and to watch in fact, in Genesis 2.15, this is a more focused expression of what that job is for Adam and for Eve. And he's called to work, tend to the work, and to watch over the garden. In fact, some of these expressions of the work and the watching was that Adam was to name the animals. He was to tend to the earth, to subdue it, to have dominion over it. We also see that his job priestly job was to watch over creation. His job was to keep lying serpents out from unruly influence. His job was to teach and to lead his wife. His job was to protect, to obey. So Adam's job or office as a priest king was to express itself in the primary work of working and watching over God's temple and kingdom. But of course, we know that Adam did not do this faithfully. Adam transgressed against God's command. He failed in his obligation, and he fell from his state of grace into sin. And all of his posterity after that, meaning all of his children and every generation, every human being born of the seed of a woman, now inherits a sinful nature. This is what we call the doctrine of original sin. Each one of us is born into the same state of fallenness because humanity has fallen from its original standard of righteousness before God into a corrupt and hostile nature before Him. What I want to do is then fast forward. For the office of priest-king was given first to Adam, who was a kind of everyman, and it involved his working and his watching over the place where God dwelled, there, the garden. But if we fast forward, we see that that same office then was passed to some of the other image bearers and other covenant heads as we progress through the Old Testament. Remember, we're talking about covenant theology, we're covenant, our biblical theology, tracing this same theme of the office through the Old Testament. So it was given not simply to Adam, but we see it further specified in the life of Israel. 
where they too were to act as priests and as king. Only this time after the fall, those offices were split. You had kings of Israel, you had priests of Israel. But under God's initial design, the two were being fulfilled in one office. But ultimately it leads into the life of Israel to be fulfilled, we see in the New Testament, in Christ. And in Christ, this office of priest-king is now reconferred on God's people, namely every member of the church. And so if you go from each covenant in the Old Testament, you see from Adam, who was first called to be the priest-king, to Noah, who was given the same kind of charge Adam was, to be faithful, fruitful, and to multiply. From Noah to Abraham, who himself was called to be a priest-king over his people, to lead them and instruct them in the laws and the ways of God, and to rule over them and to lead them in obedience to it. To Abraham to Moses, who himself carried forward the ruling responsibility of a king and the priestly function to lead his people in obedience to God, who mediated the covenant between God and Israel. And from Moses even to David, with whom God made another covenant that really recapitulated all of the same. To be faithful to God's word, David must be a faithful priest and king. And all along the way, as you trace this idea through of the office of God's people, God is deputizing his covenant people, those members of the church, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, all of Israel is deputized, his covenant people, to bear out those covenant responsibilities as priest kings. That is, they are called, each one under this covenant, to work and to watch, just as Adam was to work and to watch in the garden. They are working in and watching over the kingdom and its people. But all of these fail. All of these fall. They do not do the fullest justice to their office. Adam, of course, falls. Noah turns to drunkenness. Abraham disobeys. Moses disobeys. David disobeys. And it's not until we receive the good news of the New Testament, which is the gospel, that the only one who has been given this office to not fail is Jesus. He bears full responsibility and authority now under the covenant. Jesus fulfills Adam's office. This is why in the New Testament we see Jesus as the second Adam. Romans chapter 5 teaches us this. That where one man's disobedience led to the transgression of all, through one man's obedience comes life to all. So Jesus is a second Adam, the newer, truer, and better Adam. He takes the office of priest-king and fulfills it perfectly. He mediates the covenant by enacting it in his own blood. He leads God's people as a priest by himself being laid down as a sacrifice and interceding on their behalf. Jesus becomes for us the great high priest, the mediator of a better covenant, the true king of his people. Jesus is the great priest-king. So now that we're in the new covenant, we see that the reality of the new covenant is to bring every member of that covenant into the same relationship now restored through Jesus, the true priest-king. Under this new covenant, every Christian, every member of that covenant bears the responsibility 
by virtue of their relationship to Jesus as priest kings. So just as the church will put on Christ's righteousness, so the church should also put on Adam's political and priestly vocation. In other words, this is our authority to work again by virtue of the new covenant and the new birth. Is that what Scripture does by referring to us as sons and as daughters, as being born again as new creations, what Scripture does is commission every saint to occupy that same office of priest-king with Christ. So Christians occupy this office because by faith we're united to Christ, and so now we bear the same responsibility of that commission as priest-kings. Christ who perfects it, but united to him, now we occupy this office. Everyone tracking with me so far? This is biblical theology. As always, consult Jake if you have questions. Now this isn't, of course, something we make up or put together. It's explicit there in the New Testament. Consider, for instance, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Turn there and just put your eyes there. You can keep a thumb in Matthew. But 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. says that you, the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You see what Peter there says, that they are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation called for his own possession to proclaim the excellencies of Christ who calls us out of darkness and into light. So there is now a priestly function that Peter here recognizes on every member of the church. He'll say later in the same letter that we are living stones in the temple of God, which is, of course, the church where God dwells, whose name is glorified in their gathering. So there's a priestly function there. We also see, however, go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. That we are called, this church, a kingdom, priests to God and the Father, to whom be glory and dominion forever and ever. Is that him who loves us and has freed us from our sins and by his blood and has made us a kingdom and priests to God and Father. So notice that every member of the New Covenant Church united to Christ has the office of priest and king, is to carry out the function and the commission of Adam in the garden, of Noah after the flood of Moses and the people of Israel, of David, but ultimately and most perfectly in Christ. And our union with Christ means that we occupy the office with Him. We are called fellow heirs. We are told that we will rule with Christ. So our union with Christ is much more than just our forgiveness of sins and the imputation of righteousness. It is the responsibility and authority that you and I enter into as Christians as God's representatives on earth. Therefore, the temple of God, over which the new covenant priest kings, like those Christians today, 
that temple of God over which those priest kings must work and must watch. It's the church. It's not the garden. It's not the temple. It's not a particular nation. It is now the church. So you and I, Christians, are now called to be priest kings with Christ in the church. Members, and as members, officers with that responsibility. So that was the biblical theology portion there. I wanted to explore what the Bible actually teaches about the office of church membership. But now turn to Matthew chapter 16. If we see in the Old Testament the role of the office of church membership as working and watching over caring and tending to, Matthew 16 tells us the what and the who of that office, of that responsibility and that commitment. So Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So this passage in Matthew 16, a very familiar and famous passage, especially among us Baptists, tells us, really declares for us what is the what and the who of the church. This is a really important and seminal part of the New Testament that defines our relationship to one another. You may not have thought about it in this way, but our understanding of the nature of the church depends very closely on how we understand and interpret passages like chapter 16 in Matthew. This passage, I think, declares for us the what and the who of the church. In other words, what is the right confession regarding Jesus? That's the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? What is the right confession? But the second question there, as he turns his attention from what do people say to who do you say that I am, the second question that it answers is not the what is the right confession, but who is it that actually knows him? What is the right confession regarding Jesus? And who is it that knows him? Well, the answer for Matthew chapter 16 is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the confession. The true Son of God who is the Christ, the Messiah. God has taken on flesh, become one of us, and dwelled with us suffered for us, rose, and is now seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And those that confess this truth, with word and with deed, are those that can be said, rightly know Him. So Peter's confession is right. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. He is the Messiah. 
He is the true priest and king of his people. He is the second and final Adam, the hope of all nations, the light of the world. But those who confess this truth, like Peter does, representative there not just of the disciples, but really of all of the church, those who confess this truth with word and with deed, then are those who can be said to rightly know Christ. And this we see in the text here is how Jesus builds his church. When he says in verse 16 that you are Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus commends him. Blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this, but my Father in heaven. In verse 18 he says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So what is the rock? The rock is said at times to be Peter, or at times to be the confession well, it's plain enough that certainly he's referring to Peter. The you that the, Jesus says he will build his church upon is singular. He's referring there to Peter. But, of course, we can't separate Peter from his confession or the confession here from Peter. It is both the word and the person, the truth of the confession and the one who confesses it, which is the one upon whom Jesus builds his church. And that's how he does it. On the truth of the gospel and the people who confess it. Or in other words, the nature of the church here, the New Testament church that Jesus is building, is established or, or built upon, if you like, not on persons and not on truths, but on persons who confess the right truths. That make sense? Otherwise, we could say those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God. That's who Jesus builds his church upon. That's the rock upon which the church is to be built. Not on persons or on truths, but on persons confessing the right truths. That's the who and the what of the gospel. That's the who and the what of the church. The what is what's true about Jesus. The who is who confesses that truth rightly, both in word and deed. Well, thankfully, we see then here in chapter 16 that Jesus empowers the church with authority to determine that what and who in order that it may fulfill its, uh, its responsibility to be built, to grow. It empowers the church in order that it might be built up and established on that truth and those who confess it. So he goes on to say, I will give you, verse 19, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So he gives them the keys of the kingdom. Now the idea here of the keys is one of authority. Right? You give keys to those whom you trust. You wouldn't give the key to your house or your car to a stranger. But when you go on vacation, or you want someone to pet sit for you, you give the key to somebody you trust. And that key comes with access comes with authority, comes with responsibility. If you come into my house and my house is on fire, you have responsibility and authority to call the fire department to put it out. You have been given authority to go into my drawer to grab the dog food, to use it, to feed my animals. You have access, responsibility, and authority. You ultimately become an officer for a time of my household, that you may fulfill the obligations and responsibilities. 
Well, in the New Testament, we see what Jesus is doing in establishing his church is conferring upon each member of the church who rightly confesses the truth that Jesus is the Son of the living God, responsibility and authority to build the church on that truth. You've been given keys, he says, access, responsibility, authority, an office to confess or to borrow the terms we use in Adam's office to work and to watch. So the keys here are the authority we see then to bind and to loose. These are constraining words, language that's used to constrain or to not permit or to permit by not restraining, binding and loosening. Like you would bind a donkey as you traveled with him or you would loosen one. These keys represent the judge or the authority to judge and to declare on the what and the who. The what, of course, being the truth of the gospel, the doctrines, the laws, the confessions, the practices, as well as the who of the gospel and the church, that is, namely, the people who speak and declare those professions of faith, like Peter here does. And you do so on behalf of heaven. Notice it says that you have the authority, the keys of the kingdom to bind on earth what has been bound in heaven and to loose on earth what has been loosed in heaven. The tense here is not that your loosening and binding loosens and binds in heaven, but actually you are binding what has already been bound. You are loosening what has already loosened in heaven. So you are conforming here on earth what has already been established in heaven. So this key here, the authority, is to render judgment on the what and the who of the gospel, Jesus as the Son of the living God, the Messiah, the Christ, and those who confess it rightly by saying, yes, you are a confessor, or no, you are not. That is a judgment. That's what the keys are there to do, to judge and declare on what and the who on behalf of heaven, you become representatives. In other words, these keys for every Christian under Christ deputize their holder to pronounce the judgment concerning the what and the who of the gospel. What is the right confession and practice of the gospel? And who is a right confessor of the gospel? To bind or loose is to render a judgment or a verdict in heaven's name. You become a delegate, or an officer of heaven. And this isn't just to Peter, or to a group of disciples, or to a bishop, or even a pope. It is to all of those who are called by Jesus' name. It is the church's responsibility, and the members who comprise that church, to exercise the responsibilities and the authority of that office of church member. In other words... The keys of the kingdom here in verse 19 authorize the church to practically affirm the statements of faith that the church makes and authorize it to affirm the members that come into the public and local church or to remove those members for unrepentant sin when they no longer seem to be representative of the gospel or no longer confess the truth of the gospel. The keys authorize the church to affirm its statements. Now, how does the church particularly do this? Well, the church is, done, is doing this and has done this for thousands of years now, really through the practice of its gathering and 
It's ordinances. Ordinances, of course, are two things that Jesus has commanded the church to do long after he's been gone. Those two things are the Lord's Supper and baptism. The church practices the ordinances not simply because they're fun to do or they remind us of who Jesus is, but because these are the church's ways of enacting and visualizing the authority we've been given. Consider what baptism does. It confers upon the baptized uh, entrance into the member in, as a member of the church. It gives them, in fact, the jersey that they put on to become part of Team Jesus here at Foundation or at another church. And the Lord's Supper also says, yes, we walk together in unity, upright before God by His grace. We are together affirming one another as we take the Lord's Supper together. So the ordinances of baptism and Lord's Supper are the church's way of enacting the authority we've been given and is extended to those who are affirmed and it's withheld from those who are not affirmed. That's the authority we have to consider one another's life and confession and say, this is true, or your life does not bear witness to the truth. In other words, the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper signal the church's role as authorized priest kings or workers and watchers over the kingdom, namely the church, it makes the invisible reality of gospel work visible to the world. That's what the Lord's Supper and baptism does, and the church has been given the authority to see to it that that's done rightly. So the authority and the judgment we render in binding and loosing is the exercise of the authority we've been given as representatives of Jesus, of His church, as offices within the body of Christ to render its judgment. So if we consider again in the biblical theology that all of God's covenant people are called to work and to watch over as an office of priest-king, the temple and the people of God, we see in the New Testament the what and the who of that. Namely that Jesus himself establishes the church through the confession of his people and has been given to the church the responsibility, the authority, the keys of the kingdom to render judgments on whether that confession is right and whether people's lives adhere to that confession. So consider then what we mean when we say church membership. We mean by those who have been welcomed and affirmed by other representatives of Jesus as part of the body of Christ. Of course, that can only be done locally and visibly within local churches. So let's consider then lastly some practical aspects of all of this. Turn just a few chapters to Matthew 28. What I want us to consider as we, we finish that church membership and the office of church membership is really a call to ministry. It's a call to ministry. In Matthew chapter 28, read, of course, what has often been called the Great Commission. It says that Jesus, in verse 18, came and said to them, those disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You know, Jesus has authority. But notice what he does. He deputizes. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, there's the ordinance, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Notice the who and the what. In this commission, 
Go and make disciples, those who are to confess, and the what? The confession and those who are baptized upon the, the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit upon that profession. Go and do all that I have commanded, and behold, I am with you always into the end of the age. So friends, this great commission, as I'm sure you know, is the basic and fundamental job description of every Christian's who have been duly authorized, that is with the keys, been handed the keys to represent and to act on behalf of Jesus in the world. In other words, we can say that the Great Commission in Matthew 28 is really a renewal of God's commission to Adam in Genesis chapter 1, to go and be a priest king. So that's what membership looks like. If you're a membership of God's church in a local expression of a body like foundation, it means that you have a responsibility with Christ to do ministry. Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 4 that God gives the pastors and the evangelists and the prophets and the teachers to the church to equip them, the saints, for the work of the ministry. So the saints are to be equipped that they may do the ministry of the church. So membership in a local church is the responsibility to be ministers. Though I am ordained and though I sit and preach to you this morning, I am not the only minister in the building. It's not simply those who have been set aside for the work of vocational ministry, like myself or Jake or John, but everyone who is a Christian and has committed themselves to the work of the church now is a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it involves the work and the watchfulness of at least three things. First, gospel proclamation. Each one of us as ministers, because we are members, are to proclaim the gospel. Of course, we can do this through our preaching and through our teaching within the church. And friends, even if you are not the primary teacher or preacher in this church, it is still your obligation as priest king, as offices, officers of members, to ensure that the teaching and the preaching of the church is faithful to Scripture. But it's not simply preaching and teaching, but it's also the evangelism and the proclamation of the gospel within our community. It's the instruction of unbelievers to repent and believe, which is part of the proclamation that each one of us is charged to do as ministers of the gospel. We are to preach and to evangelize. We are to ensure the faithfulness of the preaching and the fervency of the evangelism. Your obligation as card-carrying representatives, as authorized deputies of Jesus' kingdom to work and to preach, to watch. So that's the work of the gospel proclamation. But secondly, we see ministry of membership involves gospel guardianship. There's gospel proclamation, but there's also gospel guardianship. We work in God's kingdom in preaching and proclaiming the gospel, but we tend to and watch over God's kingdom here in the church through gospel guardianship. This, of course, is seen most peculiarly through pastoral shepherding and equipping. God gives pastors and shepherds to the church that it may equip, shepherd, and care for. But every member under the gospel and the new covenant has an accountability to one another, to minister to one another. 
The new covenant is called the covenant of reconciliation. It is a ministry of reconciliation. And so the ministry that we take part in together is one of mutual accountability, submission, and encouragement. Brothers and sisters, your responsibility to one another as image bearers and as priest kings with Christ is to take accountability for one another's walk. It is not enough to look after yourself, but you must look to your neighbor as well. Those who are members with you in the church are your obligation to care for, to consider, to pray for, to encourage, and even at times to correct, rebuke, admonish. There may be times where you have to come and speak hard truths to your neighbors, to your friends, to your fellow members. But there also may be opportunity for you to encourage, to build up, to exhort. Gospel guardianship under the New Covenant means that each one of us is united together as officers with the responsibility and the authority to encourage and to build up. It is the confession, the what, and the body, the who, upon which the church is to grow, to thrive, and to fulfill its purpose in the world. So membership is a ministry which involves not only gospel proclamation, but also gospel guardianship. Consider the people next to you as stewards of your work and watchfulness. Consider yourself, older saints, as guardians of the younger. Parents, you already consider yourself, hopefully, guardians of your children. But this attitude and disposition should be true of every member of the church towards one another. Let us submit ourselves to each other to be accountable, watchful. In fact, this is ex explicitly stated in our own church covenant, that we are committing by God's help to watch over one another. Lastly, gospel ministry of membership involves really certain custodial affairs. That is, we are to tend to the various needs of the body as they may arise. There may be sicknesses that need tending to, or financial hardships that need help. There may be spiritual concerns which need care, prayer, and comfort. There may be physical needs within the body here within our own gathering place. In other words, you are to ensure a faithful witness to our community through care and integrity, walking faithfully in light of the gospel. There may be a, a, a deficiency in the body. Well, custodial affairs would mean you tend to that, whatever it may be. It could be as simply as trimming the hedges around a building or painting or laying floor, but it could also be helping organize a food drive or making ourselves available to help someone in the community. Gospel proclamation, gospel guardianship, and these other gospel custodial affairs are just some of the ways that membership within the church is really an office of ministry. One final call to action. Brothers and sisters, own your calling. Own your office as a member of God's church in Christ. You may not yet be a member of foundation, as we count members. But if you are a Christian, know that you have already entered into the household of God, and it is now your job as an officer within God's church to join yourself to others who have been given that authority, whose obligations are to proclaim, protect, defend, and preach the gospel. Own your calling and step into relationship where you can exercise that calling in office faithfully. But the exhortation to you is this. 
Know that there in Matthew 16, there is a promise as well as a command. The promise is that we will be faithful and this endeavor will succeed. He says that on this church, he will build it. On the rock, he will build it. And that not even hell shall prevail against the church. That is, we are to have a kind of gospel culture that is so bound up in obedience to Christ and the execution of our responsibility as representatives of Jesus that the gospel culture in our church will see victory over temptation to sin and idolatry, over the temptations of the world which scheme against the church. When Jesus ultimately says, with this confession and with these keys, the officers that I place within the body, with these individuals, with their confession, not even hell will be able to stop you. This is a promise of success. What is the ultimate assurance of that success? It is Christ himself who builds the church. He is the true and better Adam, the great high priest. He is the true king over all. But this priest and this king has laid down his own life as the foundation of the church. This church is his body. It is his bride. Jesus' death secures for us the very foundation and assurance of our office that we can preach, proclaim, defend, and support the gospel, that we can render faithfully judgments on the who's and the what of the church because he has authorized us to do so by virtue of his death and his resurrection. If Jesus is king over your life now, then submit yourself and own the calling and walk in assurance of the faithfulness and the success that he has secured for you. If we do this, friends, foundation will not only thrive, but we'll see a, a, a revival within our community of people who have come to know Jesus through the faithful representation of its members. Let's pray. Lord, this is indeed a deep, deep subject and thankful God for members who do take this calling seriously. And I pray that for those who have made this commitment that this morning would be in some ways a brief reminder of that work. But for those who have not yet fully embraced this, who have not truly understood and owned their responsibility as a Christian to unite themselves to a body to exercise this responsibility and authority, not that they would see themselves as members of a club, but as officers within an institution, over whom and for whom, with whom, they have been given this sacred privilege. God, help us to walk faithfully in it, assured of Christ's work, that we may work diligently, and assured of his victory, that we know that no matter the difficulties and hardships we may face in obedience to this calling, we would not be abandoned. But in Christ's own promise, we will never be left or abandoned. He will be with us. We're thankful to you as always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. And give me understanding, your word I want to keep. Direct me in the path of your commands. For there I find delight, my will is in your hands. And turn my heart away.
Your promise to the ones you love.